following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be gathered with all of you and to worship with all of you this morning. For those of you who don't know, I'm Jordan. I'm uh, the executive and creative arts pastor here at Love City. And this week, I have the great privilege of studying the Bible with all of you today. Um, So I'm going to jump right into it. This week, we're we're continuing in our series called Servant King, the Gospel of Mark. And and we have a, a pretty heavy task ahead of us, a lot to go through. So Let's go ahead and jump right into it. Um, If you would, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open to Mark chapter 14. And we'll be in Mark chapter 14, verse 27. Uh, I do want to say if you don't own a Bible, uh, there are free Bibles uh, in the Connection Center, and we'd really like to give you one. We want everyone who doesn't have a Bible and who wants a Bible to have one. So uh, you can stop by after our gathering, after service, and grab one of those Bibles, and that's our gift to you if you don't own a Bible. Um, In the meantime, though, the verses will be on the screen if you don't have a Bible. All right, well, uh, I hope you found your way to Mark 14, uh, verse 27. Um, So let's go ahead and read this. Mark 14, we're going to read verses 27 to 52. Here we go. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because it is written... I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night, before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But but Peter kept saying insistently, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all were saying the same thing also. They came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them. And fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass by him. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now he 
who was, uh, now he who was betraying him had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him and lead him away under guard. After coming, Jesus, uh, Judas immediately went to him saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. They laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. And they all left him and fled. A young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. And they seized him, but he pulled free in the linen sheet from the linen sheet and escaped naked. Well, that's a weird verse to end on. <laughs> but uh, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, uh, there, there's so much to, to hit here in this section of scriptures that, that honestly someone could probably preach 10 sermons on. Um, so I'm probably going to move quickly and not hit deeply on every single thing. Um, the title of this sermon is going to be Faithful and Forsaken. So here we are. Jesus had just shared his last meal with his disciples and he instituted communion and they sang a song of worship together, right? That's what we studied last week. But now, uh, this evening, it, it has a dark cloud hanging overhead. One of Jesus' closest friends will deny him. He will be arrested. His friends will fail him in his hour of need. They will sell him out, abandon him, and deny him. As we look at this section of Scripture, we, we are going to see that, that the suffering of Jesus is, is multifaceted. It's, it's personal, and it's physical, and it's mental, and most of all, it's, it's spiritual. Yet Jesus saw his Father's hand through all of it. Jesus trusted God in his most trying hour, an hour that our finite human minds uh, can never fully comprehend, and, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. So here's Jesus. They, they just did communion. They just had supper. Um, and, and now they're going to a place called the Mount of Olives or uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and, and I see it as, as Jesus and the disciples are going and they're walking together to the Garden of Gethsemane. And as they're walking, Jesus says to them, you will all fall away. Christ tells his disciples that, that Judas isn't the only one among them that's going to abandon him. He tells them they will all fall away, and then he quotes Zechariah 13.7. And Zechariah 13.7, uh, in these verses, and in, uh, in this verse, and then a, verse, a couple verses before and after for context, uh, God commands that the shepherd be struck down, that the sheep may be scattered as an integral part of the refining process, which will result in the creation of a new people of God. Sound familiar? Here are the disciples led by, by Peter missing the point again and maybe only hearing part of what uh, Jesus said. Jesus tells them they will all fall away, but he also tells them more about what the future holds. Jesus says you will all fall away, but I will gather you all again in new covenant. Jesus was already looking beyond the cross. He had his eyes fixed on the joy set before him. Not just Peter, but, but all the disciples will forsake Jesus and run. They will not cease being his disciples, but they will fail to stand with him in the face of persecution. Yet Jesus 
will graciously restore the disciples back to fellowship with himself following their failure to stand. Despite their coming failure, they won't be given up. The message from the risen Christ will be for his disciples and Peter and also for us. Whatever happened, apparently, though, Peter only hears uh, Jesus foretell of the disciples' abandonment, and he steps up. Peter steps up with, with arrogance, and he announces, even if everyone else falls away, Master, I certainly will not. How noble. It, it seems that, that whenever Jesus predicts uh, what's going to happen to him, the disciples respond with, with self-assertion and conceit rather than with humility. So Peter makes this seemingly bold statement of loyalty. But you see, in, in making this seemingly bold statement of loyalty, Peter is in essence calling Jesus a liar. And here's what it also shows us. It all, it's almost like Peter isn't surprised at the thought of the others deserting Jesus. It's almost like he's, he expects it of them. Peter thinks of himself as the exception to the rule. He overassumes his own strength. So, so Jesus, as Peter's saying these things and insistently saying these things, Jesus interrupts uh, Peter's brown nosing and his false heroics. And he says, most likely with, with a heavy heart and a compassionate rebuke, he says, I assure you, Peter, you will deny me even this very night. You will deny me three times even. And, and you would think that, that Peter, after saying these things, and then Jesus turning to him and saying, no, I, I'm telling you, I promise you, you're going to forsake me. You would think that this would have shocked Peter and maybe even silenced him, but, but Peter actually, he raises the stakes and he takes an even more bold stance, and he says, if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. Peter was, was unbelieving and ignorant of his own weakness. Peter's claim of, of loyalty is sad for us, knowing what we do of what will eventually take place, and that being that he does deny Jesus. So, so Peter jumps in and, and says all this stuff, and then in Peter saying this, all the other disciples join in and they declare the same thing. I will never forsake you. I will die before I deny you and abandon you. That, that, Peter's in, in the other, that Peter and the others meant what they said isn't in doubt. The mistake they made was to be too confident in their ability to stand faithfully on their own when the battle became fiercest. I think, um, I think all of us would like to think that, that we would have succeeded where, where Peter and the disciples failed. We would like to think that we would have been uh, more humble and had more humility and, and maybe had a more controlled tongue. But if we're honest, if we're really honest, we probably would have said the same thing and acted the same way. But we would have also been recipients of our Savior's forgiveness and restoration. Falling away out of the company and, and fellowship of Christ is the, is the result of, of an inward disease that, that is preying upon the vitals of our spiritual being. And that disease is, is pride, self-will, and self-confidence. If we are confident in ourselves and not in the Lord, we will fall. We must turn to Christ for strength to persevere in faith and obedience. Christ 
must be our firm foundation. We can't stubbornly and pridefully rely on our own strength because it will always, always fail us. You see, it's, it's easy for us to overestimate our own goodness and faithfulness. Too, too often, I think, I think we assume that, that we are more moral and better equipped to remain on the narrow path than, than our friends and brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think, ironically though, such self-confidence might reveal that we'll be among the first to flee our faith when the going gets tough. After, after all, and it, why? Why would that mean that maybe we're the first to, to flee our faith when the going gets tough? Because if we're confident to stand, if, if we're confident we can stand where, where no one else can, and that, that we have some type of inherent strength that other believers don't have, then guess what? We're trusting in the shakiest of foundations and not Christ, the firm foundation. Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 10 against falling where we think we are strong. He says, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed so that he doesn't fall. You see, when we, when we think we are beyond the reach of some sins, we are ready to fall. Proverbs 28 says, he who trusts his own heart is a fool. And Proverbs 16, 18 reminds us, pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before the fall. We often forget these words and we often suffer the consequences. Pride and and self-confidence are sure to lead to unwatchfulness and we will soon uh, see that as Jesus goes to pray. You see, it's, it's the consciously weak ones who lean hard. And it's the sleepy souls that are easily tempted. Here, here's what we also can't do uh, with this instance of the disciples and uh, the, really the whole Bible and what we'll see even more in this section of scriptures. We can't protest that, that we haven't committed the sins we self-righteously condemn in others, right? Just like uh, almost implied by Peter about the others falling away, but not he himself. Or maybe you and I uh, would protest that we would never and have never made the mistake that the disciples make. The question isn't what sins we have committed as much as what sins we would commit if we were faced with serious pressure. What sins we could commit we would commit if we were faced with temptation, if we were faced with opportunity, if we were faced by threat. The the sin and here's the point of me saying that that is the sin that necessitates the sending of, of God's son isn't someone else's sin, but it's my sin and it's your sin. What, what we have to do as we, as we read the Bible and as we apply it, it's, it's not for us to ask how we are better than the sinners that we read about, but it's, it's how we are apt to be like them. When we do this, we'll remember that, that we don't have strength in and of ourselves to follow Jesus, and that we must look to him alone to sustain our faithfulness. Like I said, this will be good to remember as we uh, 
study this section of scriptures. There's, there's almost something comforting about seeing how slow the disciples were to understand Jesus' teaching all, all throughout the Bible, the New Testament, and really here as well. And how reluctant they were to um, own their own weakness and brokenness. If, if Jesus could care for them, then there's hope for frail and faulty people like you and me. Jesus is a patient teacher. He's a wonderful and merciful Savior. As in Peter's life, Jesus not only foresees our betrayals, he also foresees our restoration. While Jesus remains faithful in being willing to lay down his life for others, his disciples and you and I are not faithful. Jesus is faithful even when we aren't. Jesus accepted that he would be forsaken and alone so that you and I would never be forsaken or left alone. Jesus willingly walked the path set before him so that the Father might promise you and I, I will never leave you or forsake you. So, moving on now. Jesus uh, takes his disciples to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and more than likely, Jesus would have gone here often with his disciples to pray. So Jesus goes on, on further, and he, and he tells the disciples to wait while he prays. But he takes Peter, James, and John with him further. And, and these three, Peter, James, and John, they have all witnessed Jesus' divine uh, identity and raising of, of Jairus' daughter and in his transfiguration. Now these three will also bear witness to his humanity. And that's what I want us to see today. Jesus asked these three, Peter, James, and John, to stay near and to keep watch and to pray. Now I don't know if you've, if you've really ever thought about or meditated upon the Garden of Gethsemane and what Jesus went through and how important it was, but, but I'd like to take a quick little deep dive in to that. And this is probably where the majority uh, of the rest of my time will be spent this morning. All of Jesus' human life had anticipated this hour. All of history hinges on this hour. The saving interests of a dying world and the eternal honor of his holy name are now to be cast into the crucible. The issue of, of this night's Awful work will affect heaven, it will affect earth, and it will affect hell. It will stretch out to the uttermost ages of eternity. This night, this hour is important. So this is how the Bible describes what is beginning to happen to Jesus here in the Garden of Gethsemane. It says things like this. He begins to be greatly distressed and troubled. Fully human, he confesses, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Being in agony, he falls to the ground and prays that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. So great is, is the torment that Luke says his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus is, is facing what is to come, that being death in our place. 
He is wrestling with what that means to the fullness. And he asked Peter, James, and John to stay awake and to keep watch and to pray. And yet, they continue to fail him and fall asleep. Jesus knew and, and he foretold many times of what was coming. He alludes a, a bunch throughout the New Testament to his ultimate demise. And uh, he even talked about his hour coming and it not being his time yet and the cup that he would drink. Jesus knew. So why here does it seem like, like he is crumbling under the, the thought of his time coming, under the thought of this cup. Throughout history, we have, we have tons of accounts of, of Christians facing death and, and doing so even more calmly than it, sees, than it seems that Jesus is doing here. Why does it seem like all of Jesus' followers die better than Jesus is acting here? Well, we can only assume and we will see that it wasn't death that Jesus was struggling with, but it was the cup of God's wrath and abandonment. The cup in the, cup in the Bible is a symbol. It's a, it's a symbol and a metaphor throughout all of Scripture of the wrath of God. Jesus was experiencing something more than death, something far more horrific the sufferings of Christ were, were sufferings of, of sorrow, heart sufferings. The sorrow was, was not the result of the fear of death, and it wasn't the sorrow of regret or failure, but, but it was the sorrow of pure love and sympathy. You see, Jesus here in the garden was in deep sympathy with the holiness of God, the helplessness of man, and the heinousness of sin. So Jesus, he collapses to the earth, and he prays that, that the ordeal might, might be avoided. You see, nothing in all of the Bible compares to Jesus' agony and anguish in Gethsemane. None of the laments of the Psalms, nor the broken heart of Abraham as he is preparing to sacrifice his son Isaac, not David's grief at the loss and death of his son Absalom. Nothing in the Bible compares to this. You see, Christ wasn't afraid to die. It was the fact that, that after dwelling in the love of God from all eternity, he was in a few hours to bear the punishment of man's sin. Jesus was to be made sin for us. He was to come under the curse for us. He was to feel the Father's wrath on account of human guilt. And his whole nature, not only his flesh, but his whole being, shrank from that fearful ordeal. Why did, he, why did he shrink from the cup? Because as a true son, he hesitated and he lamented that which would break up his fellowship with the Father and turn his Father's beloved, that being him, into a curse. So, so stop for a second. Let's stop for a second and really think about what it is I'm saying. Really put yourself here in these shoes and think about this. Think about how fearful and terrifying it would be to answer for your own sins, just your own sins, before a holy and almighty God. 
how can we even imagine then to begin to, to understand what it would be like to stand before God and to answer for every sin, every cowardice, every bit of evil in all of the world for all of time. The worst part of all of this being complete alienation from God. You see, for, for all of eternity, the Father and the Son have been in perfect harmony, perfect peace, perfect delight, and perfect love. Imagine what it would be like if, what it would feel like if someone you love deeply, the person you love most deeply even, all of a sudden turned their face from you and that love instantly was abandoned. And that's just our earthly relationships that are for a limited number of years, that are riddled with imperfection. Jesus' relationship with God is, is infinitely more intimate and greater than we could ever imagine. And because of that, he experienced a hell far greater than we could ever imagine or experience. Jesus was without comfort, no feeling that God loved him. You see, God was, was his light, and now there's nothing but darkness. All that he had before was about to be taken from him. He was about to feel utterly condemned as to hear from the Father, depart from me, I never knew you. The deepness of his agony, the deepness of Christ's agony in the Garden of Gethsemane is like, is like casting a stone into the Grand Canyon and waiting and listening to hear it drop. The vastness of Christ's sufferings are incomprehensible. And if, if the anticipation of these sufferings, if the very sight and taste of these sufferings sent the Son of God into shock, what must it have been like to drink them all the way down to the last drop? Even more so, if just the sight and taste of sin imputed to him brought such agony of soul that he began to stagger, how can we think we will escape or survive if we neglect and reject such a great salvation? Who can tell the weight of this burden? The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. What a burden. We will never know the depths of agony and pain Jesus endured that night alone for the love of sinners like us. Here Jesus is experiencing an abandonment, an abandonment and darkness of cosmic proportions. And according to Mark here, the decision to submit to the Father's will causes Jesus greater internal suffering than the physical crucifixion. The cross is a matter of the heart and soul before it's a matter of physical body. I want to make a quick side note for maybe those of you who are a bit put off by the thought and the idea of the wrath of God. If, if, if God is loving, 
then he has to be angry and wrathful because of all the evil and wrongdoing, right? The, the passion and the fullness with which God loves his children must at least be matched with his anger and wrath towards the evil that threatens the good of his children. And what is best for his children is himself and his glory. But our sin has, has messed that up, right? We can't have God because our sin has separated us from him. Our imperfections have created a chasm between us and the perfect holiness of God. You see, God hates sin. God hates sin because it pulls us away from him. And he is what's best for us. So God must punish sin. Tim Keller says, if you don't believe in a God of wrath, you will have no idea of your value. A God without wrath doesn't need a cross or go to a cross and die and suffer with incredible agony and cost. So, so we can see how valuable we are to God because he would do all of this for me and for you. He would endure all of this. He would agonize and wrestle with drinking every last drop of God's wrath for you. So here in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays the greatest prayer in all the world. What hung in the balance was the the glory of God's grace and the salvation of the world. The success of of Jesus' mission to earth depended on Jesus' prayer here and the answer given by God. So, So Jesus is praying as he wrestles and agonizes. And in his prayer, he addresses God as Abba, which means my father. Abba was rarely used when talking to God because it was so intensely personal and intimate. Jesus speaks to God in the everyday language of the family. What we see here by Jesus using the word Abba is we see a glimpse of the heart of the relationship of the son and the father. Here, of all places in the Garden of Gethsemane, the intimacy of of his father's love was needed in his reciprocal response. He says, Abba, as a father, as a child to its father. He says it simply, inwardly, and confidently. Abba is an expression of obedient surrender and unconditional faith. In the Father. Jesus prays and he asks God that if there is any other way, please, please let it, let it be that way, not this way. And this, this isn't in opposition to the Father's will, but it's a facing of the horror of the death he faces and the reality of all, all that that means. Yet even with this, this horror ahead, he reaffirms his Father's will. And Jesus says, says, not my will, but your will. Every hope of the gospel, hear this, every hope of the gospel succeeds because of Jesus' reverent earnestness in prayer here. Every hope of the gospel succeeds because of Jesus' submission 
to his Father's will. Before the cross, Jesus must first make the final choice to subject himself to hell itself. He must embrace the pain and and not just endure it. He must choose, he must choose the nails and the darkness. He must step forward and receive the Father's holy wrath. He must welcome the hour and the cup. Jonathan Edwards says this, God first brought him, that being Jesus, and set him at the mouth of the furnace that he might look in and stand and view its fierce and raging flames and might see where he was going and might voluntarily enter into it and bear it for sinners as knowing what it was. This view Christ had in his agony. Then God brought the cup that he was to drink and set it down before him that he might have full view of it and see what it was before he took it and drank it. Jesus has an intense struggle with the frightful reality of God's will and what it means to to fully submit to it. Nonetheless, Jesus says, I will do it. Jesus' will to obey the Father is stronger than his desire to serve himself. So remember, while all of this is happening, while Jesus is going through this, this whole time, Peter, James, and John are supposed to be watching and praying, but they are not. So Jesus comes to warn them again. Even with all of this going on, with all this agony, as they are failing him, Jesus is concerned for their souls. He says to them, the the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Don't be tempted. Don't fall into temptation. Jesus is warning them of of the kind of sinfulness that, that most of us are prone to. That being sins of of weakness and fickleness rather than sins of intention. We don't plan on sinning, but, but we also don't stand ground when we should. The disciples didn't understand their own weakness. The disciples were willing to stay with Jesus, but they didn't take into account the power of their fallenness, the power of their flesh to overcome their commitment to Christ. Our will, our will must contend with the remnants of sin in us, with our flesh. If we don't pray against our flesh, it will conquer our desire to do what is right. Let us, let us seek God's face and not trust in our own strength that we might follow through on the desires that God has given us to serve Him. You see, the, the flesh's weakness actually acts with great power to take us where we don't want to go. Trusting and obeying God, these aren't our default responses. But it's an, it's an ongoing struggle against temptation and weakness. Spiritual lethargy and, 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 or indifference can only be rectified by being aware of our tendency for indifference and being attentive in prayer. Loving and obeying God isn't passive, but it's active with purpose by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Let me say that again. Loving God and obeying him isn't passive, but it's active with purpose by the power of the Holy Spirit. And to this point, D.A. Carson says, people do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. Yikes. That one, that one gets me. He goes on and he says, we slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. You see, we don't drift towards holiness. We drift towards indifference apathy, and disobedience. So I call out to all of us, wake up, church. Wake up from your stupor and your slumber. Be alert, be on guard. Make it your daily work to fight against sin and become more like Christ. As John Owen says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. How can we be apathetic and indifferent when we see all that Jesus endured on our behalf? How dare we be indifferent when Jesus drank the horrific full cup of God's wrath every last drop so that we may never taste it? How can we be apathetic? How can we be indifferent? Here alone in the dark with his disciples sleeping, God starts to give Jesus a taste of the awful, horrible cup of his wrath. And Jesus is, or God is almost saying to Jesus, this is what it will be like if you take it. But if you don't take it, they will all perish. But if you do, no one has or ever will experience what you're about to experience. Are you ready It's almost like God's saying, here, alone, in this darkness, with his disciples all falling asleep, he's saying, you could leave. But Jesus is struggling. He's struggling for the souls of humankind and his friends and his disciples are sleeping. This, the greatest act of of faithfulness, happens while Jesus looks at his closest friends who are currently failing him. And that's a picture of us failing him as well. Jesus, knowing that we can never be fully faithful to God, was fully faithful to God, even though he knew what it would cost him. God says to us who have received Christ by grace through faith, obey me and I will bless you. And he says to Jesus in the garden, obey me and I will crush you. Jesus has to first surrender his will to his heavenly father in the garden before anything else can happen. Just as rebellion in the garden of Eden brought death's reign over humankind, as the first Adam said, not your will, but mine, Submission in the garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus, the last and better Adam, said, not my will, 
but your will. And it reversed the pattern of rebellion and sets in motion a sequence of events which defeated death itself. What we can see from Gethsemane also is that Christ knows the frailty of our human bodies. He can be touched with a feeling of our infirmities. You see, when we suffer, even if we feel like we are alone, we can find strength and encouragement knowing that Jesus suffered truly alone so that we never have to be. And even more so, we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness because Jesus was tempted and tried and suffered in every way and even more so. No one understands more than God how difficult it can be for human to embrace the will of God. And no human has suffered more in embracing the will of God, the Father, than God, the Son. When Jesus calls us to follow him, whatever the cost, he isn't calling us to do something he's unwilling to do or that he's never done himself. That's why when we, when we look to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, when, when we suffer and when it costs us to obey God and to follow his will, he understands far better than we do what it's like to, to willingly and faithfully endure for the sake of the eternal joy set before us. And even more so, now, Jesus lives to intercede for us so that we will make it through the pain to eternal joy. There's so much more that I could talk about in this section of verses. Like, like the model Jesus gives us from his prayer. Or, or how the prayer of, of Jesus and God's answer eliminates the possibility of any other way of salvation. Like I said, so many sermons could be preached from this one set of verses. Like, like literally, I deleted three pages of notes because I said, I can't go for two hours. I can't. You definitely don't want to either. But, but for this sermon, I, I felt led to to really focus on Gethsemane and the weightiness of Gethsemane, as I don't know if, if many of us have truly ever done that, truly ever stared at the horrific reality of, of Jesus' agony apart from the cross. So I'll, I'll move on from here. But, but before we go, I want to leave this, this section with this. Jesus is forsaken and he is faithful even when we are not. The Garden of Gethsemane, it was hell for Jesus. But I'm overwhelmed with gratitude that he went through it. Why? Because if there was no Gethsemane, there would be no cross. And if there was no cross, there would be no empty tomb. And if there was no empty tomb, there would only be hell for you and I. The brutal reality of, of Christ's abandonment by God, his Father, means that he was handed into the violent and ungodly hands of men for our sake. Jesus endured the hands of evil men so that the hand of the evil one himself, that being Satan, might never have authority over us. 
So Jesus finds the disciples sleeping for the last time, and he says to them, Enough. The time has come. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Jesus had agonized and wrestled and despaired, and now his face was set to do the Father's will no matter the cost. That's a whole other page right there that I I deleted. A whole other sermon. Doing the Father's will no matter the cost. As my more charismatic friends might say, that'll preach. (laughs) So what do we see here? As as Jesus said, enough, the time has come. Let's go. The one who's betraying me is coming. We can see that no one takes Jesus' life, but he freely lays it down knowing that there's no other way to reconcile sinners like you and I to the Father. The first greeting Jesus received from man, after taking man as us as well, the first greeting Jesus receives from man after taking the cup of the curse on his behalf was a kiss of betrayal, a kiss of death from Judas. Jesus was kissed with with traitor lips, even as the agony and sweat was on his brow. Christ had just accepted the the awful cup in man's place, and and all the reward, ooh, that's a hard word to say, and all the reward he receives at the hands of men is a hypocritical greeting, condemnation, and death. Why was Judas's kiss hypocritical? It was hypocritical because uh, a kiss then on the cheek was a sign of affection. And referring to him as rabbi, which Judas did, was a title of honor. And one commentator says that these actions were the first acts of mockery that would take place during the trial and passion of our Savior. You see, Judas's actions show that he neither truly loved Jesus nor honored him as he deserved. Here's what we can see from, from this. We all betray our Lord. I know, I know that's a bold statement. Maybe we don't betray him as dramatically as Judas, but we do. We give Ju- Jesus the, the Judas kiss when we give him lip service and profess his name, but yet we don't obey his word, love his disciples, love his people, and when we put other things and false gods in place of him as our greatest affection. You see, friends, we we can't be complacent about sin because all sin does, in fact, betray Jesus. But at the same time, Hear me, I know that's a bold, harsh statement, but at the same time, hear this. We shouldn't be overcome by guilt and shame when sin overtakes us because there is forgiveness and restoration through Christ. The arrest of Jesus is the the next stage of his abandonment. His inner disciples could not stay awake with him, and now they couldn't even be with him. There's a little bit of a scuffle, if you will, uh, after Jesus is, is seized and Peter cuts off this dude's ear, and we know it's Peter because the other gospels tell us that it was him, and, and Jesus basically says, what are you guys doing? Like, 
Like, you know me. You, you've seen me. I've been in the temple teaching. Why are you coming out here with swords and clubs to arrest me like I'm some kind of robber? You could have arrested me at any time without force. Like, like what's up? Like, what are you doing? So this happens, and then right after that, there's this small sins, at least in, in my Bible. It's like all red, and then all of a sudden there's this one little short black sentence, black couple of words, and we can miss it almost. And it says this, and they all left him and fled. At this, all his disciples, despite their, their recent protesting, run away for safety. Jesus was correct that they would all forsake him. You see, all of them, all the disciples drank the cup of communion. All of them pledged to die with him, and all of them forsake him. They all abandon Jesus and run. And now, Jesus is completely, totally, and utterly forsaken by everyone, by all his friends, by those closest to him, and by his Father. Everyone. And I mentioned it when I read the verses, and I guess I have to mention it, because it's pretty weird. There's this, uh, this young naked streaker dude. Uh, the, the most common thought throughout church history is uh, that the young man is actually Mark himself. Um, but I, I don't want to get into trying to figure out who this guy is, because the Bible doesn't actually truly tell us. Um, but, but one thing I think is clear, there's a couple things we can pull from this, which is weird because it's a naked streaker dude. Um, here's what we can see from this. Jesus is utterly forsaken and alone. Everyone who was allegedly on his side is now gone. One main point maybe from this is, is how terrifying this mayhem and arrest were for those of who were with Jesus. This guy would rather be naked running through the woods than to be caught dead with Jesus, than to be arrested with Jesus. Here's what we can also see. This man represents everyone who ran away and deserted Jesus with the mayhem of the rest. And the lack of, of this man's identity maybe even invites you and I to examine our own readiness to abandon Jesus. So that maybe we see him as the possible choice any of us might make to desert Jesus when our faith is tested. Jesus is arrested. He is forsaken and alone to face the wrath of men and to face the wrath of God. Jesus receives what we deserved so that we can receive what he deserved. Jesus is faithful even when we are not Sin will be punished. God's wrath will either be poured out on us or on Jesus in our place. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath that we might drink the cup of salvation. Jesus was forsaken so that you and I would never be forsaken. And Jesus is faithful despite our unfaithfulness.
Jesus knew we could never be faithful enough to God to save ourselves, so he was faithful in our place. Jesus was forsaken by God so that you and I would never be forsaken by God. God would never give up on you and I when hell itself was coming down on him. If he didn't give up then, why would he give up now on you and withhold restoration when we fall and stumble? Friends, if you are a Christian, I employ you to draw closer to this good, merciful, and faithful Savior. And if you're not a Christian, I beg you to consider and respond to what Jesus went through to serve you, love you, and reconcile you to God the Father. Let's pray. Jesus, we are overwhelmed at the thought of your sacrifice. We are so incredibly thankful that you drank every last drop of the wrath of God so that we would never have to drink it. God, forgive us of our sins of of pride, of self-will, and self-confidence. Help us to trust only in the firm foundation of your strength and not our own. Jesus, we are so thankful that, that you were forsaken and alienated from God so that we will never be. God, we are grateful that your love for us is jealous, that you will not let anything stand in the way of what is best for us, that being you. Lord, forgive us of the times that that we often betray you with our sin. Forgive us of our readiness to abandon you when things get scary and hard. Help us to fight sin daily and to be on guard. Help us to fight by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, our propensity towards apathy and indifference in serving you and in our relationship with you. Jesus, we are so grateful that you understand our frailty and our weakness. We're so grateful that you intercede on our behalf to overcome them. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you were faithful on our behalf because we never could have done it. We pray all these things in your wonderful name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.